quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yet another sign the cost of living won't be getting cheaper anytime soon. The lead starts right now. Turbulence on Wall Street as inflation hits a new 40-year high. The message from President Biden as he notes a sensitive spot in the supply chain. And making the case, the seven-part plan the January 6th committee says Donald Trump had to overthrow the government. Plus, Biden's business relationship with a country he labeled a pariah. Now his plans for a reset with Saudi Arabia, despite its record on human rights and the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper on this Friday. And we start with our politics lead and the fallout from the first primetime hearing of the January 6th committee, where it laid out new evidence and its attempt to prove former President Trump concocted a massive conspiracy to stay in power, despite knowing he lost the 2020 election. Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney detailing what she calls a seven-part plan by Trump and his allies to steal the presidency. And she says as part of that plan, Trump, quote, summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack, and then became angry when advisors told him to call off the rioters. The committee also played a jarring new video showing exactly how the events of January 6th unfolded, including possible coordination between two of the far-right groups who were among the first to breach the Capitol. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson telling CNN there are witnesses who can detail conversations between those extremist groups and members of Trump's orbit. CNN's Ryan Noble starts off our coverage today with how Democrats and Republicans are reacting to these new revelations and a preview of what's to come in next week's hearings. The January 6th Select Committee has begun to make its case that Donald Trump is to blame for what happened on January 6th. Using the words of Trump's closest allies, like Attorney General Bill Barr. I did not see evidence of fraud. And family members. Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, so I accepted what he said was saying. To lay the groundwork that Trump knew he lost the election, but told his supporters he won anyway. It's important the American people understand what truly happened. I tell you what, there's a lot, lot going on. The committee planning for seven public hearings in all. The second scheduled for Monday, the 13th, and the third on Wednesday, with a fourth to be held on Thursday, the 16th. Vice Chair Cheney teasing out the themes each hearing will hit on. She says hearing two will show Trump's massive effort to spread false and fraudulent information about the election. The third will focus on how the former president, quote, corruptly planned to replace the attorney general. Then a hearing devoted to what the committee says was Trump's idea to get then Vice President Pence to refuse to count electoral votes for Biden. After that, testimony that Cheney says describes how Trump corruptly pressured state legislatures to hand him the presidency. 
And finally, hearing six and seven zeroing in on how Trump summoned a violent mob to the Capitol that led to a deadly riot, all with the aim of convincing the American people of a conspiracy to overturn the election directed by Trump. It's a pretty simple story of a president who lost, who couldn't stand losing. Republicans like Congressman Jim Jordan, who was a focus of the investigation, attempting to downplay the committee's work. This was a um, partisan production put on by the former head of ABC News. I don't think we learned anything new. And committee chair Benny Thompson telling CNN the committee has a lot more to share. We have a number of witnesses who come forward uh, that people have not talked to before. Uh, that will document a lot of what was going on uh, in the Trump orbit uh, while all of this was occurring. And the impact of the violence on January 6th still being felt today. That day, it was just hours of hand-to-hand combat, hours of dealing with things that were way beyond any any law enforcement officer has ever trained for. And among the revelations last night was one by the vice chair, Liz Cheney, who claimed that there were members of Congress that sought pardons from the former president in January of 2021. Now, the CNN has already reported some of those names, but a new name revealed by the committee last night was Representative Scott Perry. Perry responded to that claim in a tweet today. He said the idea that he sought a pardon for himself or another member of Congress is a, quote, absolute, shameless, and soulless lie. Pam, the committee claims they have evidence of Perry's attempt to do so. We'll have to see if we see that evidence in the coming weeks. Yeah, that would be key. All right, Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill, thank you. And joining me now to discuss is former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Barrara. Hi, Preet. Good to see you. So you warned about the danger of these types of presentations either becoming too clunky or being too overly produced. Did this hearing change any minds, you think? Well, I don't know. With respect to the production, you know, there have been Republicans complaining that someone who used to be a news executive had some hand in this. I don't see what the issue is. Uh, In courtrooms all around the country, Every day, the parties, and particularly the the prosecutors in criminal cases, present their evidence. They have audiovisual aspects to the presentations. You weave together, uh, you know, documents, testimony, video, charts that are, you know, put together in summary form. And it was very professional and crisp. Didn't go over time. So I think the production was was right on and and well done and effective and compelling. Did it change any minds? Well, it depends on who was watching. Uh, I think there are a lot of people whose understanding of what happened on January 6th, and there'll be more of this, six more of these hearings, but for the people who watched the first episode, I think probably their concerns were reaffirmed. My worry is that there are lots and lots of people who didn't tune in because it's not being shown everywhere or their mind is already made up. And with respect to one of the things that was mentioned in the, in the package that just aired a minute ago, where a Republican sort of dismissed what went on by saying that there was nothing new here. Number one, there was new material here. There was new evidence here, including new video. Uh, and the second thing is, I don't know what it means to say there's nothing new here if the original facts that have been known before are not accepted by that congressman and by other people. So for many, many people in the country, this stuff is new. Yeah. 
That's a really, yeah. that's a really good point. And we're going to get to what was new in just a second. But first, I want to ask you about uh, my colleague Evan Perez's reporting that Attorney General Merrick Garland and other Justice Department officials, they were watching the hearing last night to see what crimes the committee thinks it has uncovered. Did you see any home run evidence of a crime in this hearing? Well, it's a home run evidence, unless you consider the whole amalgam of things, the collection of things that we heard and some of the things that were previewed that we're gonna hear in the future, all put together, I think there's a reasonable case that it constitutes a crime. A federal judge has already indicated in connection with the discovery dispute that there is more likely than not evidence that there were commissions of crimes here, including by the former president of the United States. And many, many legal experts have made that same observation, that there could possibly be uh, sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt guilt with respect to conspiracy to defraud the United States or obstruction of an, an official proceeding, and depending on how much more evidence there is, maybe seditious conspiracy, which are charges that have already been brought against a number of people, uh, many of whom were there that day and some of whom were not there that day. So I think you know, the way prosecutors think about this, and I think the way the committee chairs think about this is, it's piece of evidence by piece of evidence, you add it all together, and that gives you, I think, convictable proof. Republican Congressman Liz Cheney revealed that multiple Republican members of Congress sought pardons from President Trump after January 6th. Committee member Jamie Raskin said, quote, it is hard to find a more explicit statement of consciousness of guilt. What is the significance of this to you? It's exactly what Jamie Raskin said. Um, you know, that concept of consciousness of guilt is something that's used in courtrooms again around the country every day. Sometimes if the circumstances are right and someone flees, that's consciousness of guilt. If someone lies about their whereabouts, uh, when there's no reason to lie about your whereabouts, that can be consciousness of guilt. And here, if you're seeking the ultimate protection preemptively uh, with respect to something that you and your colleagues have said was, was merely tourists going to a historic site, that tells you something about their state of mind. It's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but it, you add it to the list of other bits of evidence and it shows you, if it's true, that these members of Congress were really concerned about their own behavior and thought that they might be prosecuted. What I think is also interesting here is, you know, some of the stuff that Liz Cheney and others said, you know, the chairman said last night, uh, they brought it to us and they showed us video and they showed us evidence. Some of it they just previewed. It's a pretty mm -hmm. concrete and significant thing she said about these pardons and you have a complete absolute blanket denial from Representative Perry. I'm really looking forward to seeing who has the right side of the evidence on that. Yeah, and uh, you heard Ryan Noble say there is evidence. We'll have to see, wait and see um, if we see that evidence. Um, I think that is an important part of this. But CNN reported even back then, um, I, I reported along with a couple of my colleagues, Caitlin Collins and Kevin Liptak, that there were several GOP congressmen reaching out to the White House seeking pardon. So, of course, when I heard that the congresswoman say that, I wasn't surprised at all because our understanding was back then it was happening. Um, other evidence they showed was this video testimony of people who were at the January 6th riot claiming they only went to the Capitol because Trump told them to. Let's listen. I did believe, you know, that the election was being stolen. Um, and Trump asked us to come. He personally asked for us to come to D.C. that day. And I thought for everything he's done for us, if this is the only thing he's going to ask of me, I'll do it. I, I was there, and that's because he called me there, and he laid out what is happening in our government. How could this be used in a criminal case? Well, to the, to the extent it can be shown that Donald Trump understood the effects of his words, and he used those words 
and they were responded to in the way those people, those witnesses just described, it goes to his state of mind and it's not nothing. All right, Preet Bharara, thank you so much. And up next on this Friday, inflation hitting historic highs. What President Biden today calls his number one priority may very well be his biggest liability. Plus, too dangerous to stay, but too poor to leave. Life on the front lines in Ukraine, where few even flinch when the blasts go off. And when sci-fi gets real, a robot outfitted with human skin cells. The must-see science coming up. In our money lead, the President Biden is blaming Russia's war in Ukraine for the painful inflation numbers today, now at 8.6 percent, according to May's Consumer Price Index. That is the biggest jump in prices in more than 40 years. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, President Biden says bringing prices down is his top economic priority. I understand Americans are anxious, and they're anxious for good reason. President Biden staring down a massive political liability. Make no mistake about it. I understand inflation is a real challenge to American families. New data shows consumer prices soared last month, sending inflation climbing 8.6 percent from last year, the highest since 1981. Biden delivering the bad news today after predicting six months ago that the inflation crisis had hit its peak. I think you'll see it change uh, um, sooner than quicker than more rapidly than it will take than most people think. Prices are now higher for everything from food, fuel, rent to used cars, as Biden officials say that taming inflation is their highest priority. We are open to ideas. Again, some of them require working with Congress. The president is focused on lowering costs for families. But those same officials say that the bulk of the response will fall to the Federal Reserve, as Friday's numbers only offer more reason for the central bank to continue raising interest rates. As part of his plan, I know this doesn't sound like a plan, but first and foremost, he respects the independence of the Federal Reserve. The troubling figures could spell doom for Democrats in the upcoming midterm elections this November, as Biden lashed out at Republicans, shipping conglomerates, Russian President Putin, and oil companies today. Exxon made more money than God this year. A new poll shows that only 28 percent of U.S. adults approve of Biden's handling of the economy. And Pam, obviously higher gas prices makes people think about summer travel. We do have a bit of news today, which is that the CDC is going to lift its requirement to have a negative COVID-19 test to get into the United States. That's something that's been in place since January 2021. And we're told that they're going to reevaluate it every 90 days to make sure that no troubling new variants have emerged or anything like that. But it will be some welcome news for the travel industry, which has advocated for that. It goes into effect tomorrow night at midnight. All right, quickly. All right, Kaylin Collins, thank you so much. Well, defending his actions, up next, why the embattled school police chief in Uvalde says he left his radios behind on purpose and why he didn't think he was the person in command. In our national lead, embattled Uvalde school police chief Pete Arredondo is now defending the more than hour-long delay in confronting the gunman who killed 19 children and two teachers. Chief Arredondo told the Texas Tribune he never considered himself the scene's incident commander and denies he halted attempts to enter the room and take down the shooter. But as CNN's Omar Jimenez reports from Uvalde, families of the victims are struggling to reconcile the many conflicting accounts. 
desperately trying to find a key to open the door, leaving his police radios behind so they wouldn't slow him down or give his location away. In Battle Duvaldi, School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo explaining his actions for the first time in an interview with the Texas Tribune. He said he wasn't aware of the 911 calls coming from inside the classrooms at Robb Elementary School through dispatch, unable to hear those desperate calls for help from the children. Chief Arredondo telling the Texas Tribune he called for tactical gear, a sniper, and keys to get inside, holding back from the doors for 40 minutes to avoid provoking sprays of gunfire. According to the article, he also said officers couldn't enter the steel-reinforced door without a key, and he tried dozens of keys before finding the right one. Each time I tried a key, I was just praying. 77 minutes after the shooting began, officers were finally able to unlock the door and kill the gunman. A separate report from the New York Times referencing transcripts of body camera footage reported that a law enforcement officer could be heard saying, people are going to ask why we're taking so long. Some parents of the victims are criticizing the delay. They felt like they cowered out like there was one man with, with one gun and, and hundreds of hundreds of officers and you can there's other videos of me and her like I'm trying to get in like there's other parents trying to get in. Arredondo said he never issued instructions to wait to breach the building telling the Texas Tribune he didn't consider himself the incident commander despite earlier law enforcement information saying he was in charge. I didn't issue any orders. I called for assistance and asked for an extraction tool to open the door. Arredondo, who said he attended Robb Elementary as a boy, told the Texas Tribune about his priorities that day. My mind was to get there as fast as possible, eliminate any threats, and protect the students and staff. Now, the families of the victims continue to mourn their loved ones and struggle to reconcile what they're learning from that day. That he was in my son's classroom. Camacho says her son was in the classroom of teachers Irma Garcia and Eva Mireles. Both of them killed in the shooting. Friday morning was the funeral for Mireles. Camacho's son was injured inside the room where so many of his classmates died. That makes me so mad. He named every single one of the children that lost their lives. He named every single one of them by name and where they got shot. His parents say he's just not the same kid as he was before the shooting and that he even came to this memorial at night with his parents and saw all of his classmates, his friends and teachers looking back at him. On some of the new details that have come out on the investigation in Arredondo, we reached out to Arredondo's lawyer who told us he's no longer doing interviews. We reached out to the Texas Department of Public Safety and the school district, but haven't heard back. Pamela? not been exactly forthcoming um, with key information. Omar Jimenez in Uvalde, Texas. Thank you. Well, up next, the fine for an NFL assistant coach who said this about January 6th. People's livelihoods are being destroyed. Businesses are being burned down. No problem. And then we have a dust up at the Capitol. Well, there's no nothing burned down. Only several lives lost, you know, just a dust up. How much that comment will cost him, even after he tried to clean it up.
We are back with our politics lead. The House next week is due to vote on a bill to enhance security for Supreme Court justices and their families. This comes in the wake of the arrest this week of an armed man near Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home who told police he was targeting the justice. As CNN's Nick Watt reports, federal officials warn America is in a heightened threat environment for members of the judiciary. Came from California, took a taxi from the airport to this location. To Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home, carrying a Glock pistol and zip ties, says the FBI, planning to kill Kavanaugh. He found the address online. The nine justices, all nine justices, are in danger uh, because that information is out there. According to the complaint, he was upset about the leak of a recent Supreme Court draft decision regarding the right to abortion. The public disclosure on 2nd of May prompted a significant increase in violent threats, reads a DHS memo circulated last month. Some of these threats described burning down or storming the U.S. Supreme Court and murdering justices and their clerks. Abortion has long fueled fury since the Roe v. Wade decision nearly 50 years ago. Anti-abortion extremists have carried out multiple bombings and murders. Now, the DHS, since the leak of that draft opinion that could overturn Roe v. Wade, also fears pro-abortion rights extremist violence. So there's now a high fence around the highest court in the land. And last month, I accelerated uh, the protection of all the justices' residences 24-7. Threats against federal judges were already on the rise. In 2014, 768 threats and inappropriate communications against the judiciary, according to the U.S. Marshal Service, which protects federal judges. Last year, 4,511, a near six-fold increase. Not that long ago, you know, I'd write Nick Watt a letter and threaten him, right? Now we have the social media. And so one person tweets something and 300 people glom onto that. And this is, goes to both sides of the aisle, right? One week ago, the day would be devoted uh, to hearing the motion. This retired judge in Wisconsin zip-tied and shot dead in his home by a man he once jailed. We have seen uh, a rise in domestic extremism. I think it is important that we take a look at the, the protective measures that we have in place. Nearly two years ago, a federal judge in New Jersey, Esther Salas, targeted by a self-proclaimed anti-feminist lawyer who once appeared before her. My son, Daniel Mark. Daniel, her son, was shot dead on their doorstep. Judges put their lives on the line to do their job. And really, judges do stand at the front line, ensuring that democracy is live and well in our country. And Pamela, you mentioned that bill that would increase the security for federal judges. Well, it is actually named after Judge Salas's son. And one thing it would do is make things like Justice Kavanaugh's home address harder to find online. Pamela. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. Also in our politics lead, Washington Commander's defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio has been fined $100,000 for calling the deadly January 6th insurrection a, quote, dust up and comparing the Capitol rioters to those who protested in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Let's get right to CNN's Abby Phillip and the Washington Post's Leanne Caldwell. All right, to you first, Abby. Del Rio walked back those comments, but the team's head coach 
brought up last night's hearings when explaining why Del Rio was being punished and said, it is clear January 6th was an act of domestic terrorism. What do you make of this? Look, it's it's not that hard to understand the difference between, um, you know, a people protesting uh, police violence and using violence in the streets, which is actually not something that is new. I mean, there have been riots on, uh, you know, as a result of protests or riots just in general in this country for a long time. But the first time that we ever had a riot on the Capitol in an effort to stop the peaceful transfer of power happened on January 6th. That's a very different thing. And so I I think that that is, um, you know, that comparison is actually pretty common on the right, particularly in right wing media. So it doesn't surprise me that, um, you know, presumptively this individual is is very, uh, you know, fluent in that kind of propaganda and is repeating it. And that's what a lot of Americans believe right, right now at the moment. Yeah, that's very true. It was like exact right wing talking points that I that I've seen others um, put out there as well. And Leanne, the ratings, uh, we just found out some of the ratings from last night. Early TV ratings are showing nearly 20 million people watched last night's hearing. You've said the committee did a better than expected job. What do you mean by that? Well, it's, uh, my conversations with members of the committee off the record and off on background over the past several months, uh, I've been asking them what they were going to prevent, present at this these hearings. And they really lowered expectations they, they, throughout these last few months. And so I really didn't have high expectations, especially given the high task, the tall order that they had to try to present to the American public and American public that is very hardened in their positions right now. But I think last night what they did is they gave a very good overview of what the next month of hearings are going to be. And what they did is they right off the bat, they said, you know, Donald Trump was told over and over again by people who worked for him, people who were close to him, that he lost the election. And despite that, he continued to move forward with this scheme. I thought it was a very powerful way to open those hearings and especially using the deposition, the words and the video of those people instead of lawmakers just reading transcripts. It was much more effective. Right. Uh, people like his own attorney general, Bill Barr, they showed clips of his daughter, Ivanka Trump. And Abby, this morning, Trump responded specifically to that clip of his daughter. Here's what the committee showed. This is the president's daughter commenting on Bill Barr's statement that the department found no fraud sufficient to overturn the election. How did that affect your perspective about the election when Attorney General Barr made that statement? It affected my perspective. Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, So I accepted what he was saying. So now Trump is saying Ivanka was not involved with election results and, quote, long since checked out. Trump says she only is trying to be respectful to Bill Barr. But, Abby, we know that she was at the January 6th rally. My reporting after the election was that she wasn't checked out at all on this and that she knew her dad had lost the election and was trying to, to, to sort of strategize with others on, on how to, to uh, what to do, how to talk to him about it. So what do you make of this? It, it doesn't pass the common sense test, and it certainly doesn't pass the facts test, considering that we, you know, Pam, you and I were reporting at, at that time. We knew that, for example, uh, President Trump, in that period between the election and January 6th, and when he was uh, 
when he was out of office on January 20th, didn't do a whole lot else other than talk about Mm -hmm. the big lie. And so the idea that Ivanka Trump wasn't really aware or checked into the thing that was preoccupying um, her father's life at the time is just simply not true. But I do think that that video is just emblematic of what also went on uh, pretty rampantly in the Trump White House, which is that most of the people around Trump knew that all of this stuff wasn't true, that it was pretty much made up, and they did nothing about it. And I think that's the point that the, the January 6th committee was also trying to make. Right. And what do you think, Leah? What's, you, what's your take? Yeah, I think that as far as what Donald Trump, he's going to have an aggressive response throughout this. And it was proof that he was watching last night or at least heard about it. And moving forward, the committee is going to have to uh, they have a plan. And on one of those days, they are going to focus on Mike Pence. And in an interview with Jamie Raskin, a member of the committee earlier this week, I asked him if they really thought that Mike Pence's life was in danger Well, last night they previewed that. And when they have a hearing focusing on Mike Pence and his role that day, I think that that's going to be perhaps very shocking. And it's going to be very enlightening to see what happened and what the how the president reacted, because as the committee said last night, the president said, well, maybe he deserves the punishment. We'll have to wait and see what more we find out about this. Thank you both. (laughs) And be sure to join Abby for Inside Politics Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern. Up next, Biden's reset plan with Saudi Arabia after once calling the nation a pariah. Turning now to our world lead, a dramatic about face for President Biden. Senior U.S. officials telling CNN the president wants to reset the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia by effectively moving on from the 2018 murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. This after then-candidate Biden campaigned on being tough with Saudi Arabia. Listen. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the, in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia. Let's bring in CNN's Natasha Bertrand. Natasha, is this really just about convincing Saudi Arabia to lower global oil prices? Well, Pam, oil is not the only thing at issue here, but there's no denying that it is one of the key driving factors of the administration's desire to have this reset with Saudi Arabia, especially amid the kind of global glut of oil that we've been experiencing after so many countries have tried to cut off Russia's exports of oil to the rest of the world. So this is obviously a key priority for the Biden administration and something that Biden advisors have said openly. Energy Secretary uh, Jennifer Granholm was on CNN just earlier this week and she said that while it is true that the crown prince in Saudi Arabia should be held to account for what they did to the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, she caveated that with a very important comment. And she said, there is also no question that we have to increase global oil supply and OPEC led by Saudi Arabia is at the head of the pack for that. So really kind of articulating there how important the administration sees Saudi Arabia to its ability to increase uh, global oil production, something that they saw about a week ago when OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, did agree to increase production by about 200,000 barrels per day in July and August. Not a huge amount, but something that the Biden administration does see as uh, a harbinger of the kind of thing that Saudi Arabia could do if relations are better between the two countries. So how are administration officials justifying this exactly? Well, they say that this doesn't 
have everything to do with oil. They say that Saudi Arabia is a very important regional ally for the United States, and particularly because one of the Biden administration's key foreign policy and national security objectives right now is to cut Russia off from the rest of the world. And isolating Russia, both geopolitically and financially, is uh, it is important to have Saudi Arabia on the U.S. side for that, not only because of the oil, but also because of just kind of isolating Russia from any potential uh, allies and partners in, in the region. So what the administration says is that it's about continuing to isolate Russia. It's about, of course, continuing the truce in Yemen, which the administration is very proud to have helped uh, facilitate uh, between the Saudis and the, Houthi back, uh, the Iran-backed Houthi rebels uh, in, in Yemen. And it's also about uh, Israel, of course, and Iran. Israel and Saudi Arabia have a warming relationship that the U.S. sees itself as, again, helping to facilitate. And the Iran question is a major one. Uh, and they see Saudi Arabia as potentially helping uh, in their fight to hold uh, Iran accountable and help potentially come up with a new uh, nuclear agreement and keep Iran's ambitions there at bay. Pam. All right, Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. And you mentioned Russia. Well, today a top Ukrainian intelligence official said Russia may have the resources to keep up its war for another year, but Putin may try to freeze the fighting soon to try to convince the West to drop sanctions that are crippling Russia's economy. Back in Ukraine, life on the front line is grinding on despite no running water, lack of food, widespread power outages, and buildings in ruins. CNN's Ben Wiedemann went to the eastern city of Bakhmut, where residents barely flinch at the sound of rocket fire. The daily bread has arrived. Two loaves per person in the frontline city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine. There's no gas here. The bakeries don't work. So the loaves, 10,000, are trucked 10 hours here every day. Lilia has come with her two grandchildren and says she tries to shield them from the sounds of war. We tell them there are some guys playing with tanks, she says. How can I damage their mental health? You shouldn't do that. It's impossible. That's the roar of outgoing Ukrainian fire. Tetyan is a volunteer helping hand out the bread. Leaving Bakhmut is out of the question. I have two children and four grandchildren, she tells me. I love them all. I want all of us to live here. It's our land. Everything will be fine. God protects us. Pavlo Diachenko's job is to investigate every strike, every damaged building for the Bakhmut police. Air strike in any time. In the morning, in the evening, we don't know when it's going. Uh, have a damage he takes us to a school struck the, by Russian warplanes Wednesday. Two passers-by were injured. Classes haven't been held for months. Not far away, a complex of agricultural warehouses has been hit. Workers salvage what they can. Shrapnel tore into the roof of one warehouse containing a precious resource. We don't know the motives of the Russians for hitting this facility. It's been struck three times, most recently on Thursday morning. But one cannot but wonder if all of this Ukrainian grain is the target. Lyudmila and her two children have been staying at this city-run dormitory since March. They fled the shelling on her nearby town. 
She's pondered leaving to a safer part of the country, but doesn't have enough money, and in the end asks, what's the point? The Russians are coming. It's the same everywhere, she says. When they, the Russians she means, are done here, they'll go further. Yet others aren't so fatalistic, reminded as they wait for the bus out of the city why they should go. Igor, a beekeeper in peacetime, is leaving with his cat, Simon Simeonich. I left everything here, he says, my bees and my house with all my belongings. They load their bags on the bus and go. And of course, the, that high morale we saw among Ukrainians after they were able to push the Russians back from the capital, Kyiv, is starting to disappear as reality is becoming to bite in terms of just the intensity of Russia's artillery bombardment of eastern Ukraine. Pamela? Ben Wiedemann in Ukraine. Thank you very much, Ben. Well, flashback Friday, or should we say flashback Friday for this one. See the robots with human skin bringing movies like Blade Runner and Terminator to real life. And our tech lead, while beauty may only be skin deep, researchers at the Institute of Industrial Science in Tokyo have grown human-like living skin on a robotic finger. This high-tech epidermis can repel water and even be repaired using collagen And while objectively creepy, I think we can all agree on that, experts say human-like features on robots will help androids seamlessly integrate into our lives. Hmm, not sure if that's a good or bad thing. For example, instead of clunking around with a heavy metal exterior and imprecise fingers, a robot with skin will be able to pick up household items easily. Now, I do like that idea. But now the head researcher is setting his sights on making the skin self-sustaining, adding veins to transport nutrients, and one day sinking his fingers into adding hair, sweat glands, and even nails. Hmm. Wow. Well, coming up uh, Sunday on State of the Union, Democratic January 6th committee member Jamie Raskin, Republican Congressman Chris Jacobs of New York, economist Larry Summers, and former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. They're all this Sunday at 9 a.m. Eastern and noon here on CNN. And I'll be back tomorrow night at 6 for CNN Newsroom. Until then, you can follow me on Twitter at Pamela Brown CNN or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 